0: For a year and a half, we haven't had the choir. Wasn't it great seeing the choir up there? (laughs) Another small step towards normal, and that is wonderful. Good morning, thanks for coming to Bethel Church today, and I am uh, honored to open God's word with you, and I I will here in a moment, I, I wanna say a welcome to campuses joining us today as well as those online. And uh, we pray that God is speaking and ministering to you as well. Before I get into the message, though, I, I want to give you an update on our Afghan uh, refugee uh, matter that I, I shared with you a few weeks ago. Uh, we continue to monitor through our agencies that we're working with the status of especially these 400 uh Christian leaders and their families in Afghanistan that we were particularly concerned about. I'm pleased to tell you of the 400, a hundred of them, roughly a hundred of them, have gotten out of Afghanistan and are in a refugee kind of camp situation in a neighboring country. So we're very thankful for those hundred getting out. at issue, though, is that the likelihood of them coming to the U.S. is appearing to fade. And I'm, I'm relating this, you know, this is secondhand, hand third-hand, from what uh, these, these uh, agencies are telling us. Uh, but when the U.S. pulled out of Afghanistan, it kind of went like radio silent. And a lot of our uh, kind of contacts and ability to, to do things there also went away or at least have gone underground. Uh, So we remain eager. We're very ready to help if uh, the Lord would allow for them to come. And uh, we will see if that happens. I do want to thank so many of you. I mean, truly, we were deluged with people saying, my home's available, I'll do whatever you need, I'm in, I want to be a part of this. And we had so many people that, that said that to us that I just want to praise the church. This is Christian hospitality, you know, uh, and on display. And I have to think it pleases the Lord uh, for that kind of a response. And so great to see that alive and well at Bethel Church. And again, who knows? This thing is totally a fluid situation. Who knows? We may yet have an opportunity, and that would be great if we do. And uh, so, why don't we just pause for a moment and pray for this situation in particular? Would you join me, Heavenly Father, God? We pause now and we uh, pray for the very difficult and challenging situation for uh, for everyone in Afghanistan, but in particular for those that are Christians. And Father, we pause now and we we pray for them. We pray that you would protect the church. We pray that you would uh, protect these 400 that we have some contact with. And, Father, we ask that if it be your goodwill that you would uh, provide for them and even perhaps provide passage to uh, countries like the U.S., and in particular the U.S., and in particular Indiana. We would love to be able to uh, display Christ's love and his hospitality to us by displaying hospitality and showing love uh, to them should we have the opportunity. Father, we pray that much like in China 100 years ago when the communists took over and it appeared that the church in China would, would collapse, but today the church in China is the largest church in the world. We pray that a similar story might be told in Afghanistan that someday we would see how you used the Taliban and all the circumstances of 2021 to further the gospel and to confound the wise and to show that it is, again, the mystery of the gospel by the Spirit that works to redeem men and women from around the world. And so we pray for Afghanistan and we lift our brothers and sisters up there in the, in the name of Jesus, who loved the nations, amen. All right, last week we kicked off our series entitled Habits of Grace. And uh, what a great chance I think this is for, for our whole congregation to take some steps forward in our daily walk with God. I view this series a little bit like uh, the tide rolling in where uh, the big boats, the small boats, the dinghy boats... You know, when the tide, all the boats rise. And I hope that this series is kind of like that. No matter where you are in your walk with God, that you are equipped a little bit more, maybe inspired a little bit more to engage with God on a daily basis and to actually know how to do that. And this series is going to be intentionally, you know, it's all, everything here, we want to be biblical and theological, but we also want this to be uh, very practical and to share some best practices and little tips on how to do this. And we're going to be doing that over the course of the entire fall. We took a look last week at 1 Timothy 4, seven, which says, Train yourselves for godliness. Train yourselves for godliness. We saw that that word for train is the, is the old Greek word for gym. Like, go to the gym for godliness. It's a word that has all kinds of, like, sweat on it. And it insinuates, and indeed it insinuates, it tells us that, that we have a part to play in our own growth in godliness. That yes, God does it by the Spirit, it is habits of grace after all, but it's not like we just let you know, lay at bed and say, God, make me like Jesus, and now I'm going to sleep. Uh, you know, it doesn't work that way. These are habits and disciplines that we can uh, form in our life, and as we do, we are in the place that God's grace and his transforming power in our lives uh, that, that we're in that channel, okay? We're standing in the stream for God to do that. In fact, this was our, our uh, definition of, ch- of habits of grace. God ordained channels of his transforming power into our lives to grow our character into the likeness of Christ, okay? Channels, paths, habits of grace, streams of grace, pick your metaphor, all of them are encouraging us to stand in the stream and to have maximum uh, maximum exposure to the means of grace that God has given for us to be made into the likeness of Christ. Christ-likeness, godliness, holiness, sanctification, these are essentially synonyms biblically for what God is doing in our life. He, his will for us is our sanctification, uh, Paul writes to the Thessalonians. And so uh, it should not be a mystery to you if you are a Christian that God's not done with you. That God has a purpose and a plan. He wants to make you into the very likeness of the greatest person who has ever lived. His name is Jesus. And uh, for us, that's exciting, right? Uh, you know, if, 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 if I get to be like anybody and God wants to make me like anybody, then uh, if it's Jesus, that's good with me. And I want that, and I think we all should want that in our life. And in fact, speaking of Jesus, we noted that even Jesus practice these habits of grace. I mean, from the wilderness temptation, Garden of Gethsemane, many other places, we find Jesus doing the same things that we're gonna encourage our church family to be doing and to say, if Jesus saw the need for these things, how much more do uh, sinners like us? Now, our first up habit of grace is one that uh, many authors who write on these things say is the most important one. Now, personally, I would say it's neck and neck with prayer. Uh, You can debate which is the most important one. But perhaps you've already guessed what it is. Did you see the video we played earlier of the uh, Indonesian tribe who had never had the Bible in their own language? And you see the joy on their face as they are about to receive god's word in their own language and how precious it was to them and how valuable it was to them that video whenever i see it it kind of you know i think about my you know my library here in my office i got you know i don't even know how how many bibles that i have and at home i got so many bibles and now on my phone i've got you know 15 translations of the bible and probably you have uh less than that because you're not as godly as me Humility is not a habit of grace, by the way. Uh, I'm joking. I'm joking. But we, I, would, I would dare say if you don't have a Bible, you could have it within about 45 seconds by downloading it. I mean, that's the world that we live in. And to think about, you know, uh, saints like William Tyndale and others who gave their life so that the Bible could be translated from the Latin into English. Or Martin Luther and what he did in the uh, The Wittenberg Castle to give Germany their very first German translation of the Bible. I mean, historically, this was a huge thing. And people that had the Bible in their own language, they just couldn't imagine anything greater or better. But as the Bible says, familiarity breeds contempt. And here in the U.S., American evangelicalism, we've got Bibles everywhere. Do you know how many Bibles are left here every Sunday? I don't either, but it, it's a sad number, okay? And some of you are feeling guilty right now, like maybe that's where it is. I haven't seen it in three months. Uh, so, ooh, is that a deep dig? I don't know. Let it be uh, that if needed. So perhaps that's a good question. If you lost your Bible, how long would it be until you even noticed? So I put that out there that God's word, which we call the Scriptures, or the Bible, uh, is, a, is a holy thing. That's why it's called the Holy Bible and is one of God's primary means of grace in our life. I read a quote somewhere, and I felt a little conviction about it because it said, the sign of a great pastor is his people read their Bibles. And I don't know uh, how, how much reading is going on. It's hard for me to know. But as a result of all of this, I hope there's more than there was a month ago and maybe even today's message will spur you to prioritize in a a greater way God's word in your life. Now, there are so many verses that we could uh, turn to for this truth, but we're gonna use Colossians 3.16. And I love Bible verses that help you remember the reference, right? Like John 3.16, really awesome verse. Colossians 3.16, really awesome verse. 1 John 3.16, look it up later, really awesome verse. The reference kind of helps you remember. So Colossians 3.16 is our text today. I'm going to begin reading in verse 15 because there's a little paragraph here within which verse 16 makes sense. So here is God's word. Why don't we stand for the reading of God's word on a message like this one in particular? Can we do that? giving thanks to God the Father through him. And the church said, amen. amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Colossians 3, practical chapter. Colossians, like most if not all of Paul's letters, depending on if you think he wrote Hebrews or not, uh, begin with doctrine and then move into sections that are a little bit more sort of like Christianity on the street level of life. And that's... Colossians 3. In fact, if you look ahead of, of uh, verse 18, you'll see guidance on marriage, guidance on vocation and work, guidance on parenting. Some of you are just going to keep reading and not pay attention uh, to what I have to say. You're like, that's what I need help in, those things. Well, check it out later. Uh, but we find in these verses Paul is putting out there in a, a vision of the ideal Christian community. What should this all look like and feel like? What are the values of a vibrant, spirit-led church? We have this word, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. In the church, the peace of Christ. Where Christ is Lord, there is a unity that people have within the church because of the commonality of Jesus Christ being Lord. There is an an awe, there is a worship of him, a Christological wonder. He is our peace, and he establishes harmony with one another when we mutually are in awe of him. And this is what I said a few weeks ago in Bottom Lines of Bethel Church. we got to keep the main thing the main thing. Because when we make a minor thing a main thing, chaos ensues in the congregation. But when we keep the main thing, Jesus Christ the main thing, He is our peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. None of these minor things, secondary things, are worthy of uniting God's people together. Only Christ is capable of doing that. So when our peace is based on Christ, we have in our church the peace of Christ. Which brings us now to our primary text. We're just really looking at one sentence today. Colossians 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. So we're just going to take that apart. My outline is let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's the sermon. So what is the Word of Christ? You know, you kind of read these things, and you can make certain assumptions. But if you really think about what is meant, and especially what it was meant when Paul wrote this around 60 AD, what did he mean by the Word of Christ? We could, you know, assume, well, he means, of course, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, all the rest. And uh, historically, to realize that some of those books haven't even been written yet, most of those Gospels have not been uh, compiled yet. And Paul writes to the Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What is he actually referring to in light of the fact that the New Testament canon was not yet uh, complete and would not be completed, frankly, for a couple decades until John would write uh, what we call Revelation. Okay, so we can't say that the word of Christ that Paul has in mind here is the New Testament of the Bible. Uh, It could mean the Old Testament of the Bible, because that certainly was written, and have we not learned that the Old Testament is all about him? Is this not what Jesus said on the road to Emmaus? Do you remember the disciples there after his resurrection? And uh, they say, uh, he goes, hey, what are you talking about? And they're like, we're talking about what everybody's talking about. We're talking about Jesus of Nazareth, great prophet, and, and uh, the Romans have killed him, but some of our women say he's actually alive. And Jesus says, you don't say And then he says, oh, you foolish of heart. Does not the scripture say that the Christ must die and rise again? And the text says that beginning in the Old Testament, He exegeted himself out of the Old Testament. In other words, he walked through the Old Testament saying, this was talking about me, and this was talking about me, and this was talking about me. If we get to heaven and there's a big DVD library where you can pick any of these moments in the Bible and actually watch and hear what they say, uh, you know, this isn't my top, that wouldn't be my top one, but it's probably a top 10. Like, I would love to hear Jesus exegete himself out of the Old Testament. So, Paul could be, when he says the Word of Christ, he could be referring to the Old Testament. He could also be talking about the teachings of Christ. Again, here we are, 30-ish years after uh, Jesus' life and, and death and ascension. And uh there's all kinds of teachings and sayings of Jesus that are circulating. People like Luke are beginning to compile these so they can write their, the Gospel of Luke or Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, and Mark's talking to Peter to write Mark. And, and uh, you know, I don't know who John talked to, but he, uh, he was perhaps writing his. And so it could be referring to the Word of Christ, the words of Christ, and make sure that what Jesus taught is dwelling in you richly. It could be the word about Christ, or what we call the gospel, the gospel of Jesus being the incarnate, eternal Son of God, who came into this world, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, as the Apostles' Creed said, the life and the ministry of of Jesus. But essentially, his cross, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, and his ascension It could be referring to the word of Christ, could be the word about Christ, and the essentials of the gospel, could refer to that. Here's the thing, we're not sure. Most likely, it means all those things. Any of those things that are telling us about Christ and about uh, divine revelation, all of these things could be and probably should be. Because all of those things are about Christ. And all of them are revelations from Christ that God wrote down in a book that we call the Bible. And this is not a message, uh, a doctrine of, of scripture. We could talk about inspiration and inerrancy and different doctrines like that. And we have in the past and we will in the future. That's not the point of this, of this message. But all those things are are critical and true. The thing that we want to see is that the word of Christ, the word of God, is a word about Christ such that we can call the Bible the word of Christ because it's all about him. Okay, So let the words about Christ, the word of Christ, the gospel, the written words of scripture dwell in you richly. We are not talking here about uh, our daily bread devotionals. We're not talking here about, uh, you know, uh, articles on favorite blogs and websites. We're not talking about, uh, you know, a book about this or that. We're talking about one book. We're talking about the Bible. As a Christian, this is a means of grace from God to me. And it is an essential one. And there has never been anybody that has grown in godliness apart from a vibrant relationship with the Bible in their life. Let the word of Christ dwell in you. Dwell in you. There's a magazine entitled Dwell, at least there used to be. Many of these went out of business, I think, but there used to be one called Dwell. And it was a home-furnishing, home-decorating, sort of home-living kind of, of magazine. And it was about homes and houses and how to make them, you know, have people feel at home in them. And that is the sense of the Greek word here. It literally means house or home, dwelling, dwell. Let the word of Christ be a resident in your heart, in your life. As many of you know, for many years, I lived and pastored here at this church. I was the bachelor pastor. Fifteen years, I was senior pastor of this church as the bachelor pastor. And one thing that I learned over all those years of being single, and many of you that are single, you probably know this, when you leave in the morning and you go do your day, whatever it might be, when you come back, your house looks exactly the way that it did when you left. If you left dishes out, they're still out. If uh, you didn't make the bed, it's still unmade. It looks exactly like it did when you left. So for me, after living alone for so long, having a wife in the house was quite a transition. Okay, Evidence of a woman in my house is truly everywhere, okay? Somebody has taken up residence in my home. You throw in a couple kids, and their presence in my home is also unmistakable. If you were to come over to my house at any given moment, it doesn't matter when it was, you would walk in and you'd say, oh, there's a woman here and some kids because it's scattered all over (laughs) the house. This is not a bachelor pad anymore. And friends, when the word of Christ dwells, has an address, takes up residence in your heart and in your life, things change. They change. They, it, it looks different. The furniture of your life gets rearranged, and the old Michael Jordan posters are taken down. And up goes pictures of fruit in a frame or something. (laughs) And those shirts and old sweatshirts that fit you so well, they're gone. Such is the power of God's word when it dwells within us. Here's the Bible describing itself, Hebrews 4, verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It is a weapon in the hand of God, in the spirit of God. It is... A means of grace. It is one of the ways and one of the primary ways that God brings his transforming power into our life. It is because this book is different than any other book. You could go to a Barnes and Noble if they still exist somewhere and shelves a book. A million books are published every single year but not one of them is like this book. Because this book has spiritual power to it that makes it different than any other writings in all of human history. And one of the reasons for that is that the Spirit of God works through the Word of God to change the people of God, okay? Theologians, they call this illumination. It is this strange combination, when you read the Bible or you hear it taught or whatever, of conviction, combined with this desire to change in my life. Have you ever felt that? It is when the Spirit of God is using the Word of God and applying it to my life, helping me to see that, you know, this area of my life, boy, I need to make some changes, or reminding me of the grace of God, encouraging me, sustaining me, maybe through the Psalms or whatever, in a trial in my life, in a hundred other things, God does through the word of God because it is living and it is active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It is a channel of grace and growth. When we put our minds and hearts in the sphere of its influence, which is what is happening right now, by the way, what does the word of God do? It, it teaches us. It convicts us. It equips us, it inspires us, it devotes us, it uh, refines us, it encourages us, it enlightens us, it grows us, it matures us, it sanctifies us, and it changes us. There is nothing in the world like God's word when it has taken up a resident address in your heart. It is God's word combined with the Spirit of God that brings the power of the word of God into the hearts of the people of God. And that is the sense of what Colossians 3 is saying with dwell, okay? Dwell. To ask you, does your Bible have an an address in your heart? Is it living there? Are there any signs that spiritually you aren't a bachelor anymore? because of the change taking place. You see, my observation as a pastor is that there are many, many people whose relationship with God's word is not one of dwelling, but of visiting, okay? God's word is a visitor in their life, and there is a huge difference between dwelling and and visiting. If you don't realize that, ask yourself which you prefer, your in-laws visiting or your in-laws moving in? That is the difference between a visit and dwelling. And the urging of God's word is to make God's word such a regular part of your daily life, and we're going to talk more about how to do this, but such a regular part of of the rhythm of your life that it's almost like the Bible has an address in your heart. It has moved in. Again, too many people, their relationship with the Bible is, is kind of like an Airbnb where they say things like this. You know, it, it, when it comes to visiting, if I can make it to church, okay, maybe I will. It's going to be a short visit depending on the length of the sermon. As quickly as possible, I'm going to be on to other things. And that word, that seed of truth in my heart and in my mind is quickly and easily forgotten. And the effect that it could have otherwise in my life is taken away. It's almost like uh, Jesus in the parable of the seeds where, you know, the the sower sows the seeds and there's seed that that falls on ground and the birds come quickly and eat it up. It doesn't have any time to take root. And that's how God's word can be. So, I mean, just because you're at church today and I'm up here flapping my gums... And saying words doesn't in any way mean that what I am saying is going to make any difference in your life. And you might say, well, Pastor Steve, if you would preach better, maybe it would. And I wish that I could preach better than I do. I sincerely do. But the effect of this is less dependent on the quality of the preacher and more dependent on the reception of the hearer. Are you listening right now? Are you allowing God's word to dwell Dwell how? Dwell in you, notice the term, richly. Richly. Now, richly, this is not a monetary sense. It is uh, the sense of richness or abundance or scope or permeation, okay? Pervasiveness. Paul could have said, let the word of Christ dwell in you. And we'd have gone, yeah, we got to do it. But then he puts in there richly, and I'm glad that he did because otherwise you could say to yourself, "Well, I, you know, I, I know the Bible, or you know, I, I, uh, I've, I've kind of been there, done that," and not realize that with the term richly, it doesn't matter who you are or where you are in your walk with God or your relationship with the Bible. There is a richness and a deepness that is yet available that nobody here has ever experienced or achieved, like we will never get to the place where we've got this all figured out. I remember when I was a youth pastor, there was a um, kind of a, I don't know, snobby know-it-all senior in my youth group. I remember her name. I won't mention it. But uh, I remember saying to her, you should read your Bible. And she said, I don't need to. I already did. At 18, she had plumbed the depths of the infinite word of God and all the complexities that theologians can't quite figure out, but she had it all figured out. Or did she not? I mean, what, what was she failing in a statement like that? Or what, what is failing in the person who maybe perhaps grew up with the Bible and there's sort of this sense like, you can't tell me anything that I don't know. It is a failure to understand what makes this different than your algebra book. This is different because this is divine revelation. And because of that, the Bible is like an onion where you just keep peeling away the layers, and every time you peel away a layer, there's another layer, and then there's another layer. And we will spend all of our lives, even if we're the most devoted Bible student. We will spend all of our lives peeling away, peeling away, peeling away, and when we're done, there's still this big onion. Because it is divine revelation. It is sourced in the character of God. We will never exhaust the truths about God found in the richness of the Bible. Two quick quotes, the Bible's comfort grows more comforting, its illumination more brilliant, and its insights more profound, even as it conveys less and less new information. A.W. Tozer, the Bible is not an end in itself, but a means to bring men to an intimate and satisfying knowledge of God, that they may enter into him, that they may delight in his presence, may taste and know the inner sweetness of the very God himself in the core and center of of our hearts, or of their hearts. That is the Bible. Now, if you are here and you're saying to yourself, all right, Pastor Steve, you've convinced me I've had a too low a view of scripture and I need a little more dwelling, I've been a, I've been a visitor with the Bible, I, I, I want the, the address, what do I do? Here's what I want to tell you. Come back next Sunday, okay? Because we're gonna get into the practical ways of doing that. The point of this message is to hold high the Word of God, and for all of us to have this increasing desire to have a closer and more active relationship with my Bible so that I can have a more intimate relationship with the God of the Bible. Because if you don't have that, I could say, do this and do that and do this, and it's like you going to the gym and you know, the fitness guy's going, do this and do that and do that, and you're like, I'm going home, right? I want my potato chips and a football game. I'm not going to do any of those things. I'm not inspired. I don't see the value of it. And unless we understand that the Bible is one of the primary means of God's grace in my life and valuing that, then all the best practices won't matter at all, even though we're going to share those next week. So let's just sit here on let the word of Christ dwell in you Richly. Which brings me to this. Have you been intrigued by this? I wonder what he's got up his sleeve with with that. Well, I want to talk to you about the Bible like tea. Okay? Tea. There are many ways to make tea. I remember years ago I got a tour of the Pepsi plant in Munster, which is a fascinating Uh, tour if you ever get to do it and on the tour we were in one section of this giant warehouse and they had these huge shelves I mean three stories tall type shelves and on these shelves are these huge I didn't even know what they were that's why I I said because these things are like the size of a small minivan and I I said to the tour guide I said what are those and he goes those are tea bags that's how we make Lipton iced tea and I remember looking and thinking, those are the biggest tea bags in the entire world. <laughs> Could hardly believe it. Uh, so there, there are varying ways to make tea, but all of them uh, involve, even at the Pepsi Munster plant, tea bags. Okay? Tea bags. And so the way that you make tea uh, is, and, and I'm more of a coffee drinker than a, than, a, than a tea person, but I do understand how to make tea. And the basic idea is that you have uh, the the, the tea bag and you have, depending if you want hot or cold, they warmed this up for me for the illustration. You have your warm water, okay? And then, and this is super complicated, watch very carefully. (laughs) Because you have to have the right wrist action. You put the tea into the glass. Did you notice how I did that? Okay. Now if you want it to uh, get you know, more tea, you kind of agitate it, right? You sort of do that kind of thing. But the, the point is that you, you put the tea into the water and that tea does its thing. Am I over anybody's head so far with this illustration? I'm guessing not. If you want it to go fast, you agitate it. But you don't have to do that. Like I remember growing up, my mom for a season got into sun tea. Maybe some of you, I don't know if you, does anybody do sun tea anymore? But uh, she got into sun tea, and so she would have this little jar, big jar, she'd fill it with water, she'd put whatever tea it is, and it would sit on the, on the sidewalk in front of our house for hours. I don't know what made that better, but she really liked sun tea, okay? Sun tea. I'm not a tea expert, but I do know that people like their tea at different strengths. There is the kind of like the the quick tea, instant tea sort of tea, which is maybe a lighter tea, you know, not quite as strong a tea. Uh, It's not like sun tea that sits out all day. But here's the thing, with tea, the longer and the more the tea bag is in there, the stronger the tea. Have you ever had southern tea? (laughs) Southern tea should be in its own category because southern tea is very strong tea combined with, like, gallons of sugar. In fact, if it's a proper Southern tea, you don't drink it, you chew it, really, right? <laughs> That's Southern tea. And there's some people that, that like their tea. That's a really strong tea. I've been to India. I remember my first day in India at, at Baurat Bible College and uh, they were giving us a tour and all of a sudden they said, oh, well, it's time. We went to the president's office. We sat down and what are we doing? They said, it's tea time. And there we sat every day about 10 o'clock. They would, they would break for, Tea, very strong tea that they have there in India. But again, the more exposure the jar has or the glass has to the tea, the more tea that gets in the water, the stronger the tea will be. Now, if you don't like this illustration, Dustin Rouse gave it to me, okay? (laughs) So I'm going to give him credit for it. But I actually think that this works really well with let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. To ask the question, how strong is your spiritual tea? There are many lightly Christianized tea people. There's only the slightest hint of gospel tea in them. Hardly discernible, no real, like, is there any tea in here or not? I can hardly taste anything. These are the people, you know, they they went to church. I went to Easter at Bethel Church. It was so awesome, so awesome, I don't have to go for another year. (laughs) The tea of God's word and the gospel and the word of Christ only was in their heart very quickly and, and, and removed. Then you have other people that their approach to tea is they want more sugar, less tea. Keep it sweet, keep it happy, nothing hard. I'm not going to apply myself. Don't expect me to <laughs> exert any mental effort here. Spiritual discipline? No way. I don't want anything hard. Okay? I want my faith and I want my church like sugar water. And there are today entire churches, using this metaphor, that are basically built on a sugar water approach to spiritual tea. Heavy on the sugar, light on the tea. I don't want a doctrinal sermon. And I don't want it long. And I don't want a doctrinal book. <laughs> you know, I don't want anything that's going to sort of like challenge me. And why? For the same reason someone who rarely drinks tea is repulsed at strong tea. They have no developed taste for anything with actual reverence for God or the weightiness of God in it. We want it light. We want it sugary. We want it sort of happy. The word of Christ has never dwelt richly in them. And they have no taste for that sort of tea. They are described in Hebrews 5, and I'm saying all of this because I don't want anybody in our church to be this way. Here is Hebrews 5, talking about how the word of God matures us. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles or the words of God. You need milk, so it's a little different metaphor here. You need milk, not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. In other words, perpetual spiritual immaturity. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have the powers of discernment, trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. The mature, the godly, what do we aspire to here? What is what is our vision for if you're a part of our church family you come here here maybe that's you're a sinner you're not even saved and you hear the gospel a friend shares it sermon shares it song shares it whatever it is you respond and you become a christian and just like when we have babies born we're like yay they're babies yay but what do we what's what's the vision for these babies we want to see them grow we want, to, we want to see them become. We want to see what God has in their life. And our vision here is no matter where you are on the spectrum of maturity, is that our church is an equipping church and an encouraging church and one that 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 helps to spur you from where you are to where God wants you to be, to grow you. And that's the point of Hebrews 5. And how do we do that? One key way is to fill our hearts and minds with the Bible, the word of Christ, the glory of God, for these things to become residents within our hearts. People like this, their Bibles are worn out, okay, falling apart. They got notes and highlights everywhere. They make the most of any biblical teaching by not just listening but actively learning and prayerfully applying. They want more and more. The Sunday sermon is important, but it's not the only thing for them with respect to God's word. They enjoy also the daily reading of God's word, the kind of devotional reading and applying of God's word to their life. These are people that, when you meet them, they're likely chewing on some passage of some kind. You go to coffee with them; they might say, "You know, I read in my Bible this morning such." So what do you think that means? You know, it just works into the kind of flow of their life. What happens over time when the tea bag of Scripture is always soaking in your soul? it becomes actually hard to see the tea bag. Have you ever done that? You ever gone to make tea, and you're gonna microwave it, you know, you put the bag in it, you put it in the cup, you put it in the microwave, you hit it, you know, a minute and a half or whatever, and then you get about with your day, and you forgot that you actually were warming it up in the first place. The next morning you open the microwave, and there's the teacup. You ever looked at tea? After like 24 hours of a bag sitting in it, you look in it, you can't even see the bag. It's so what? Dark. I mean, even look at here. Look, look how this is changing even as I preach this sermon. It's getting darker and darker as more tea is getting into the cup. And that, friends, is the goal. God's Word, the Gospel of Jesus, the Scriptures in our life, the more that they are a part of our life, a part of our thoughts, a part of our ponderings, and it's not like, you know, every, every time you... Every thought I have is about the Bible. I'm not, this is not sort of a, like, Pollyannish kind of sermon. I'm not talking about that at all. But in the words of Charles Spurgeon, talking about John Bunyan, who wrote uh, Pilgrim's Progress, he said, if you cut John Bunyan, he bleeds the Bible. His blood is bibline. That's what Spurgeon said. It was just so much a part of him. Now, I don't know if any of us here will ever get to that point, myself included, but we can strive for that. And the more that we engage with God's word and have it as a part of our life, the more that gospel tea works into and permeates who we are. And it changes us because it is the powerful living word of God. So our goal in this series is to give you practical help for sure. And the practical help for this is next week. Did I say that already? I can't remember. Did I mention already that next week we're gonna be like, hey, okay, how do I do this and some practical tips for doing that? If I didn't mention that before, let me say it again. Next week, we're gonna be talking about the practical tips to doing it. But this week, I want all of us to be thinking about what is my relationship with God's Word and how can I enhance that so that I can grow and mature into the person that God would have me to be, indeed into the very likeness of Christ. And next week, we're going to talk about how to make tea. Dark, rich, thick, spiritual, biblical tea. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, Bethel Church. Amen.